Science and Wisdom Live is a project of Jamyang London Buddhist Centre, a non-profit organisation. Please consider supporting us with a donation to help us keep our podcasts and videos free and ad-free. To support us now, please visit our website at scienceandwisdomlive.com. Welcome to Science and Wisdom Live. Today, we share the second part of the dialogue on meditation, consciousness and the pursuit of wisdom, which was released last month. Today's episode is a Q&A session with Professor Marjorie Woolacott, Professor John Vervecki and Swami Sarvapriyananda. The speakers discuss the interplay between self-inquiry, dialogue and meditation, how meditation and contemplation can help us live more fulfilling lives by making us more deeply grounded in reality and what's the connection between the development of wisdom and the experience of non-duality. All right, let's give the audience a chance to ask a few questions. Is any, anything queued up out there? So we have a first question from Alex, and he asks, some traditions teach that dialectic can lead one to enlightenment or realization. What is the relationship between dialectic and the self-inquiry exercises being discussed? Could I respond first to that? Because I've been working on just this really recently. <laughs> if you go back beyond behind the Hegelian understanding of the dialectic, um, which is taking place at you know the level of concept and perception, um, and you move back to the Platonic notion and ultimately the Socratic notion of dialogos and dialectica and things like that, um, there is no deep division between these. The examination of other people that we engage in, in in dialogical practices this way between us, like I said, taking other people's perspectives and dwelling and internalizing, learning to take their perspective on my perspective, et cetera, is, is inseparable from your, your self-inquiry. And here's, here's the fundamental evidence for it. This comes from out of developmental psychology in Vygotsky. You do not start out as a self-aware being in any introspective sense, at least. I won't comment on ultimate ontological claims. But what I mean is, for, until you're about four years of old, you can't introspect. If you ask a three-year-old what's going on in their head, they'll say blood. That is an acquired ability, and we forget that. That's part of the childhood amnesia. I actually, I actually, because I'm a cognitive scientist, it must be horrible to have your parent being a cognitive scientist. Because I was keep, I, 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 I actually noted the first time my son, my younger son, introspected. It was really interesting. He said, "Daddy, it's, it's snowing outside, but only in my head." And I went, oh, you're imagining it and you can introspect that. And then he came up to me the other way, the other time, and he said, I have a backwards camera in my head. And I went, what? What do you mean? And then I realized he meant memory. He mm. can re he can relive and, and revisualize things from the past. And then I asked him, does anybody else have that? And he said, no, only I do, right? Which was to show you that he still had some more to go. What we, we get our ability to be metacognitive, to know that we know to take perspective on our perspectives by actually doing this. This is from Vygotsky. The child has a perspective on the problem. The parent has a perspective that encompasses the child's perspective. And what the child does is starts imitating the parent. It starts imitating the parent taking the perspective on the child. And eventually that gets internalized. Your ability to metacognize yourself is because you have internalized how other people are aware of you. 
and how other people can take a perspective on you. Your self-knowledge and your knowledge of others are deeply bound up and intertwined. So an ancient Platonic dialectic, Socratic dialectic, was exactly that claim that the vertical, who am I, and the horizontal, how am I with you, are completely interpenetrating, completely interdefining. And that, in fact, was the main task of the whole Neoplatonic tradition of dialectic. So the answer, I would say, from that tradition, a tradition that I actually consider myself an adherent to, says that dialectic properly involves interpersonal and intrapersonal inquiry, inquiry deeply interpenetrating and interaffording each other. And there is really good cognitive scientific developmental evidence for that. Daniel Siegel, on his work on the mindful brain, says our ability to mindsight other people, see them into their minds, and, that, and allow them to see more deeply into us. We take that ability, and when we're meditating, we're just doing it to ourselves. We're doing the same thing. We're doing that mindsight resonant with ourselves. So my answer to that question is I do not think they are separable from each other. Dialectic and self-inquiry, properly understood, completely interpenetrate and interafford each other. Go yes, next. Swamiji. Yeah. So uh, self, I'll take it as self-inquiry dialectics and uh, meditation. I think that's, those are the two terms that were used, dialectic and meditation. And this has been an ancient debate, at least two systems. Um, I, I know of Tibetan Buddhism on one hand, and my home system, which is Advaita Vedanta. This has been an ancient debate. How do you become enlightened? Uh, is it through a philosophical inquiry, self-inquiry, teaching and self-inquiry? That's one. Or by meditation? Um, we learn the, the, the two terms are jnana and dhyana. Jnana means knowledge, inquiry, philosophical inquiry. And dhyana is meditation. Let's see what they have to say about each other. That shows us uh, you know, the difference. Uh, the, the jnani on the path of inquiry, they would say the real problem is ignorance. Not knowing, not noticing, not realizing. And for ignorance, knowledge is the solution. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the teaching is there, you think about it and begin to notice, realize, understand, get it, insight. Not sitting quietly in meditation, that's silly. You, you can't just go into a class to learn physics and sit quietly and think that you are learning. You have to listen to the lecture, you have to read the books, you have to do the assignments, then you get to get knowledge. So knowledge is always generated by inquiry. Inquiry leads to knowledge, not sitting quietly in meditation. Now the other side, the dhyanis say, all of what you are doing in that path is just more thinking. Um, what we need to know is that background radiance, that ever-present awareness. So you shut down thinking, shut down these contents of consciousness, and then in consciousness you realize you like awareness of awareness, and you get there. So these are the two points of view, the yogis and the dhyanis and the jnanis. What has happened practically? Practically, seekers of which there have been thousands over thousands of years, they have come to a realization that uh, you need both. You need the teaching, you need the hard work of inquiring into our own experience. And then once you gain some insight, if you claim, I get it, then you stay with it. That staying with it, there are meditative techniques which will help you to stay with it. In Vedanta, they are called nididhyasana, Vedantic meditation or non-dual meditation. And that leads to full-blown enlightenment what is full-blown enlightenment? When you get the benefits of enlightenment. Professor Willicott, any, any reflection on that? Yes, I think a couple of things. One is that 
I like what Swamiji was saying, and I know that I've often um, read in various texts that there are two ways to become enlightened, and they talk about the long path and the short path. And I realize that I like those terms thinking about my own practices, because for me, the long path is all the physical practices that we do include meditation, chanting, um, contemplation, et cetera. And um, for most of us, we need that long path to begin to quiet the mind and focus it within. And once the mind is quiet enough through that long path, then the short path might occur where we recognize suddenly who we really are. We have some sort of true meditative awakening. It's like, oh, that's what I am, but I realized I couldn't have done anything with a short path early on in my practices. I needed the quieting of the mind to actually begin to move me toward being able to actually be aware enough to see what was right in front of me. So I think that's critical. And I just want to add one other thing about what John was talking about, and I think we're actually experiencing it here, um, how important listening is to other people. And I think that you were mentioning Dan Siegel talking about how we listen to each other in a dialogue and then we turn inside and we listen inside of ourselves. And I've had a very interesting experience listening to a very famous conductor who's now dead now, Claudio Abado. And I don't know how many of you know him, but he is an incredible um, conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic and other wonderful orchestras. And one of the things that his musicians said about him is that when he conducted, he never gave them instructions on how to play the music. He stopped and he would say, listen. And it was really listen to each other, listen to yourself playing the music, and then listen inside to see how it should be played. And he, they said then when they did that, they truly began playing as one. And they were one integral unit. And I thought he was giving them mystical practices as a conductor of a symphony that allowed them to play music in this beautiful, playful way as a single integral unit. So I'm taking that to heart as I go on in all of my own practices and music. I think I'd like to segue with a question on the connection between non-duality and the development of wisdom. You've all touched on the fact that we tend to have a default uh, sense of self, which is very uh, something very solid and very separated from the outside world. And getting more insight can help to slowly deconstruct this strong experience of a separated self, of an independent self, and that's at the core of many wisdom traditions. So I would like to ask, how does that deconstruction of a strong dualistic view help us to move towards greater wisdom and find greater meaning in our lives? Yes. I'm willing at least to start yeah. the discussion and then yeah, maybe Swamiji can go on. But I mean, for me, it's really been watching myself in this whole process of that initial mystical experience and then trying to put it into practice. And I realized that when I first started, I was definitely in a world of my own duality. And I was always reacting to my husband or politics or things like that. And I'm often being angry and upset. And I began to see after a while that when I could see them as part of myself in that non-dual way that you're talking about, I then could shift entirely from my me versus you to one where I could see that we're each shining points of light, of awareness that are all part of this greater unity. And I could feel compassion. And for me, the key 
as of course, most of the um, Tibetan Buddhist traditions and other Buddhist traditions talk about, compassion is actually a key that seems to come from meditation where we get a sense of interrelatedness. And then after we have the interrelatedness with others, we feel then that they are equally valuable to our own selves in terms of their needs, their wants, and their opinions. So I think for me, it was that issue that allowed me to um, begin to shift how I actually acted out in the world. Before I answer this, just a, a comment on observation on the last discussion about um, you know, the long path and the direct realization. Um, in our tradition, the, the wisdom, the received wisdom is that if you do the long path, if you do your work on the long path, meditation and all the practices properly, when that insight comes, that realization comes, it will be a full-blown realization. Yeah. Otherwise, one can still get very direct and genuine glimpses of the truth, but still there'll be a hard work remaining of, of um, you know, assimilating and manifesting, living that truth will require more work then. So this is the uh, idea about the two. Uh, about duality and non-duality, in Advaita Vedanta, um, notice that all our experiences require a kind of duality, at least a subject-object duality. Now, if we take this to be the reality, that is called ignorance. When we come to knowledge, we realize that there is always a background of non-duality, that there is a non-dual re uh, reality which is experienced in duality. Uh, you know, the non-dual reality is always there. To think of it like our dream experience. So in, my, in our dreams, um, there are people and there are things and you are yourself there in your own dream. But when you wake up, you realize you and whatever and whoever you experienced in the dream, all of it was you, the dreaming mind. Um, so in the same way, right here in our waking world also, it's not that we are completely cut off from each other. There's one underlying non-dual consciousness or Brahman, what, Atman, whatever you call it. And that's appearing as the subject and the objective world. So um, in ignorance, duality is taken to be the reality and there's nothing more to it. Uh, but in knowledge or in realization, non-duality is the reality. And then you can happily inhabit a world of dualistic experiences with the background of non-dual wisdom. So I, the, the connections between non-duality and um, the cultivation of wisdom, I think, are very profound on, on many dimensions. I think non-duality helps to address some of the perennial problems faced by human beings like absurdity and alienation. Thomas Nagel talks about this in The Absurd and The View From Nowhere. All of my life, things seem so relevant and important. Listen to the word import, important to me, uh, right? But if I zoom out to bigger and bigger objective perspectives, that can seem insignificant and meaningless to me. And what we have in experiences of absurdity is when the, the sense of the impersonal third-person perspective undermines any sense of significance in our first-person perspective. And this is what people can fall into a kind of sense of absurdity. People can experience a kind of profound alienation uh, because uh, they, can, they can really take seriously and suffer the divide between uh, the subjective and the objective between their individuation and their participation in their world. So when if I can experience non-duality, 
Spinoza talks about this in Scantia Intuitiva. And when you read the ethics, you, you have to read the ethics until this happens. I, and it goes towards what, what Swami said. You have to do the really hard work of making your way through the ethics, all the arguments and all the theorems and all the proofs. But then you get this moment, which he talks about, Scantia Intuitiva, in which you see the whole of the argument in each premise, and you see each premise in the whole of the argument. And then you lift your head from the text and you see all of reality in each thing and each thing within all of reality, including yourself. And you get alleviation from absurdity and alienation. You get an enhancement of the sense of connectedness. Part of what wisdom is, is enhancing the sense of connectedness. Um, and so you have to be able to alleviate absurdity and alienation. Part of wisdom is also overcoming self-deception. Self-deception requires breaking your frame and making a new frame. And when you can do those in a highly interpenetrating, in co coordinated manner, this right. This is what I, when I teach people this practices, where they first do a deep meditation, a deep contemplation, then they alternate, and then they and right, and then with time it gets parallel, and then it gets simultaneous, and you get this realization, prajna, scantia intuitiva, and not only does it alleviate alienation and absurdity, enhance meaning, which is a significant part of someone who's wise. They can make lives meaningful. That capacity is the ultimate arena within which re reframing and transframing your experience can occur. It gives you the, it, it, it is the state which affords the most most powerful systemic and systematic insight, the most powerful overcoming of self-deception. And self-deception is what severs us from ourselves, self-deception and other people in the world. So non-duality can enhance overcoming self-deception, foolishness, and it can enhance any meaning in life, overcoming absurdity and alienation. And those are the two sides that you want from wisdom. You want it to reduce self-deception comprehensively, and you want it to reduce alienation, absurdity, and the anxieties that go with it comprehensively. A person is wise if they have that integrated, profound peace that is a deep contact with what's real. That's how I think non-duality contributes to wisdom. Should we take a question from Andy? I see Andy has... The question is this, does consciousness have the capacity to know everything? Does consciousness have the capacity for knowing everything? Um, only com consciousness has the capacity for knowing anything. And then what you know would depend uh, upon the instruments of knowledge. So there is consciousness and there's the mind and the sense organs and all our scientific instrumentations. So how you use it, that will give you knowledge. And uh, that's how knowledge happens. Maybe I could add one thing as well. And that is that Often the question comes up, well, if a, some, if a person is enlightened and therefore is interconnected with everything in the universe, if they're aware of that one consciousness, would they have infinite wisdom? And sometimes there are claims that, well, then you have infinite wisdom. But I like the way one person put it, and that was, you will know the right thing at the right time in terms of your own awareness. And that's the key issue rather than expecting, you wouldn't want to know everything because as John was saying, it would overwhelm your senses and you would be totally confused, but you will know the right thing at the right time. Yeah, I, I would, yeah, I think the answer is no. Consciousness cannot achieve a state of omniscience because I think consciousness is precisely the, the process of preventing us from trying to know everything um and and i agree with what marjorie just said i think 
consciousness it, it overlaps with wisdom and therefore that's why altering consciousness or transforming consciousness is a way of cultivating wisdom because it's about doing the right thing at the right time to the right degree for the right reasons. I mean, Aristotle famously said, you know, it's not about being angry or not being angry. It's about being angry at the right time for the right reasons to the right degree. And that's what I mean by relevance realization, getting that grasping, that shaping, that mute, that fittedness, um, and that sense of connectedness. Uh, that's, that's, that, that, that I think is um, exactly what consciousness is for and and I think we should ask better. Not that I'm not that I'm dismissing your question, but in, I want I want to bring back that distinction between knowledge and wisdom. I don't think we should be pursuing omniscience. I I I, I think that's I, I I don't think that's possible for us in any reasonable sense. But can we be pursuing the best possible wisdom? Yes. Will that involve? an education of consciousness in some fashion? I think so. I, I just have to say this because uh, what Andy asked uh, is the question with which all of Vedanta basically starts. Across the Upanishads, you find the student going to the teacher and asking, what is that by knowing which one knows everything? And the answer always is Brahman, pure being, pure awareness or pure consciousness, whatever. But there is a, uh, there is a, a subtle point here. The point is, not that when you are enlightened, you know everything in detail, not that you know the contents of libraries or encyclopedias, uh, but you know things in, in, you know the reality of everything. In a sense, if you see clay and you see all the pottery made of clay, when you see all the pottery, you don't know what kinds of pots the potter will make, but you know it will be all that same clay the same gold in all the variety of ornaments, which you don't know what details, what kind of new aesthetic creation the jeweler or the potter will come up with. Um, so you don't know what it is in particular, but whatever is there in the universe, whatever is there in reality, you know the underlying reality of it. In that sense, you know everything. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. And from the Neoplatonic tradition, uh, what we know in, in, when we know anything is we know being, we know reality realizing itself. And what we can do is we can really improve. We can become connoisseurs in developing the taste for realness. And, th and in that sense, we can touch that which is known in everything. But that is not to touch the form of everything or its own specific existence. Oh, but, that's beautiful. Mm, yes. Right. But the ability to... Then think about the two meanings of this word and how they I want to be I want them to be heard together. Enhancing realization, that's that's almost in a sentence what I think wisdom is. 